The subject for the evening talk is the nature of wisdom. Sometimes in the course of our life we do have some opportunity to pause and take some stock, some account of our existence. And generally speaking, when we do this, we reflect and think a little bit about ourselves and what we have done with our life and some of the influential and predominant experiences which have given shape to our existence. We also dwell with regard to our present, the kind of roles and situations, places and environments which become familiar and known to us. <coughs> and also, when we take uh, stock and account of our life, we also dwell to some degree on the future, what the future might bring to us, where it might lead us, and certainly to some degree or other our capacity to have some view, some perceptions with regard to the future is based on what our present is and sometimes and in a quite influential way what our past has been. And so when we do think, as I say, of ourselves and our relationship to this world, the, the thing of time, of our past, of our present, and of our future, is where we bring and know and experience all of our life. And we do have this rather remarkable and unusual facility within ourselves to step back, to look in a little bit more way of a non-attached way and to see what the movement of our life is and the stream and the current of it from past into present and into future. Sometimes in our dwell dwelling upon our life, our situation of our time, past, present, or, or what the future might be, we may notice within ourselves some kind of uh, reaction. You and I, at times, we focus on a feature of our life. And we say to ourselves, I want it to be different. I want it somehow to change itself. I don't want to see in the future the continuity of a particular event or uh, current of experiences or the way I am or the way my immediate environment of persons or uh, place or whatever is. And these thoughts sometimes can come into our mind with quite some degree of uh, ferocity, really wanting things to be really different from what they are. 
and we experience the, the charge, the momentum of such thoughts. And when we look with a little bit more care and awareness to that, it seems as though one or two things, three things perhaps, probably more, might occur. One is we change the fact of the situation which is occurring around us or to us. We move out of the studies or into it. We move out of the job or into it, out of the place, our relationship or whatever it might be, which is uh, uh, bothering us. And sometimes uh, men and women do make, of course, uh, such decisions to make a change from what is known to something or sometimes someone else. And sometimes we look and we say to ourselves, it's not in fact a matter of the situation being around me being all wrong or complex or unsatisfactory, but in fact it's my relationship to that situation. It's the way I perceive it, the way I look at it, the way I think about it, the way I write about it, the way that I talk about it, and the kind of outlook and attitude and all that I bring to it. And then we look at ourselves and we say, well, what is it going to be? Is it going to be a change of the fact? In some way or other I step away from it or I use whatever I can to change it. Or is it going to be that it's going to be a change in my relationship to it? That I have to discover what it means to look into circumstances of life, to perceive it differently from the way that I am at the present. And sometimes you and I, we might find ourselves simply carping on about something which, or someone which we don't like, or engaging in kind of endless streams of um, bitterness or dissatisfaction or forms of complaining, complaining, complaining. And somehow or other, we haven't realized that that relationship of oneself to a situation is with the quality of mind that we have, with what we bring to it, influences and gives shape to that situation. It gives it substance. And there's nothing in the world quite like the mind and dwelling upon and sometimes endlessly and bitterly dwelling upon and thinking that somehow one is revealing to oneself and to others the truth of a situation. And all that in fact we are revealing is a dissatisfied, agitated, moody, irritable state of mind. So <laughs> and somehow or other the connection between what we pour out and the, and the viewing of the situation, that somehow we haven't understood something. There isn't the wisdom to understand how we feed through what comes out of the state of mind. And there's certainly necessity in life, obviously, for analysis, for criticism, for looking at a situation. But if there is some wisdom in the face of a situation that we are experiencing, that wisdom will bring out of us 
some response, which reflects the wisdom and it doesn't reflect the carping on mind, the agitated mind, the uh, dissatisfied, unrestful mind. Sometimes in the course of today, let alone any other day in our life, we say to ourselves, and we endeavor rather humanly to convince ourselves that we've come here to meditate, <laughs> that we have read the proliferation of uh, books on uh, um, meditation, that we perhaps have been inspired and perhaps a little encouraged by the reports and accounts of uh, meditation uh, experiences uh, that people have uh, claimed to have. And in all of that, we bring in, as we so often do, the image, in this case, pleasant image, of what meditation is like. And from the reports that one often uh, reads about or hears about, there is often a rather selective process which goes on. And rather conveniently, we eliminate what meditation is really about and we uh, include or rather embrace some specific features of it. And we have here sometimes these mind-boggling words that come out like bliss <laughs> and um, ecstasy. That's another one. I'm not talking about that what you think I'm talking about. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, joy and um, uh, compassion and loving kindness. That's a favorite. And... Uh, <laughs> a stream of these lovely experiences. And of course, in spiritual life, in contemplative existence, they do occur and they are a credit to the processes of life more than ourself, really. And yet somehow or other, we can, in our rather divisive thought in spiritual matters, just highlight and select these and pinpoint these as being some kind of measure or yardstick about what meditation is all about. And then the path, spiritual path, becomes littered and strewn with immense uh, disappointment because it seems, and sometimes people do report, that everybody else is getting it and one is in the small minority of the <laughs> not getting it category. And so I say in looking fully, and meditation is a contribution to looking fully, is to look fully means it must be non-exclusive. It means it must embrace the pleasures and the pains, the joys and the sadnesses, the, the delights, and the horrors of existence as it shows itself. And woe betide human beings whenever we forget that life is to accommodate both movements and that movement is something we give care to and address because in that movement of the pleasures and pains of life we can discover 
and those who have a bias either way are not seeing very well nor very clearly at all. Sometimes in, our, in the lack of wisdom, mostly I'm talking about the lack of wisdom at the moment, I might even get to wisdom in a few minutes, <laughs> that sometimes in the lack of wisdom uh, that, <laughs> that takes place, rather than the pursuit of the joyful, uh, wondrous, mystical and profound experiences of spiritual life, we opt and swing for other situation. And the other situation is where we interpret events exclusively and narrowly in the painful way. We've got used to doing that. We've got used to an identity which sees things in terms of hard, difficult, painful, and all the language that accompanies it. And as you know, there's been some uh, questioning of the whole notion these days of the poor me uh, syndrome. And all of that is so easy that the perception and the unpleasant feeling that they begin to work together. And in that working together, one looks at life through this work, through this perception and this feeling, and actually believes what one thinks. Believes it. And so, in situations, wherever they change in a way which isn't to one's approval, and this is what life is called, <laughs> change taking place which isn't to one's approval, <laughs> that when this is occurring, that the impact of that upon the feeling and upon the perception is that somehow it's used to reinforce the status quo of I. Poor I, poor me, poor self, and all the reinforcement that takes place. When on earth is this going to end once and for all? Aren't we tired of thinking this, believing this, assuming this? perceiving in this way, imagining in this way, reinforcing in this way. So as I say, sometimes there's the working with the, the, the fact, and whatever that fact may be. Sometimes the fact, as the old uh, English proverb uh, rather wisely says, what cannot be cured must be endured. And sometimes that is one of the hard truths of life, which may be for some in the present, or some of us, in ways we don't know yet in, with regard to the future. Sometimes it's the relationship to uh, the facts of a situation. And certainly if there is a perennial activity, as we surely have learned by now, that sometimes just changing the fact doesn't make a scrap of difference because the corresponding inner change hasn't taken place. And what one may change outside of oneself to make one's life easier and better, and it's a human right, of course, to do that, may not 
in the longer, deeper sense of things may not make any difference because the feeling and perception within hasn't changed and then we are doomed to reinforcing and repeating history. When on earth are we ever going to learn that change is total and therefore must embrace and endeavour this perception and feeling of a situation? What will make that change? And spiritual life is, in a way, rather fundamentally, I would say, concerned with that change. Just recently, if I may say, I heard a rather lo lo lovely story. And a um, friend asked me to um, um, read a, uh, a book written by a Catholic priest who was um, giving teachings in mindfulness, meditations and awareness and some quite uh, lovely uh, teachings therein. And in this uh, rather um, thin uh, booklet, there was a rather a delightful uh, story and it kind of reflected a little bit the point which I'm, I'm trying to get over. And said at the end of the last uh, I nearly said last war, but there have been so many since. The end of the Second World uh, War. The, uh, in the relationship of uh, Russia to Finland, that new uh, borders were being made. And people who were living on the, that border, which was changing, in fact, had to make their mind up on which country they were going to live in. And for some, and and including a number of farmers, there was a genuine dilemma about the place to live in. And one farmer commented by saying that, that uh, he wished to uh, live in Finland, but he didn't want to upset uh, the Russians because he, he was a, an old uh, farmer. So when they approached him and said to him, well, in which country are you going to uh, live in? Are you going to live in uh, Russia or in Finland? And he said to them very, very politely, he said, look, I'm a very old farmer. I'm turned 80 uh, years of uh, age. And he said, um, I like Russia uh, very, very much. But he said, I don't think I could stand another Russian winter. <laughs> And, and to me, it kind of uh, person personified in the situations in our day-to-day -day life in which we find ourselves. And as I said before, we bring to it a kind of package and very conditioned ways of looking at things. And this conditioned ways of looking at things sometimes works comfortably and in an accessible way for us. But sometimes what we bring to the situation and what the situation is does not meet together one iota. And when it doesn't meet together, there is a collision. That collision is called suffering. What is the wisdom of life which comes to perception and feelings in life 
in, in with what we perceive, what we look at, so that there isn't a collision. Realization of truth is that realization which ends the collision. We see what's going on, we see what is, and there isn't this compounding of pain in it. What is that perception? What is that wisdom which we can bring to it? Sometimes with meditation, that meditation or awarenesses or mindfulnesses in a way, I do, do feel, get a slightly, and sometimes intensely, exaggerated place in the scheme of things. And sometimes, we, like people like ourselves, are uh, referred to, quite uh, appropriately, I suppose, as meditation teachers, as insight meditation teachers, and therefore emerging out of this long-standing tradition. In a way, uh, um, for myself, I don't really um, concern myself, or as it might seem, to meditation, insight meditation itself, as much respect and love as I have for it. But I'm much more concerned <coughs> with that which is more significant and in this case, what is more significant than meditation is wisdom in life, wisdom in the here and now, wisdom in the moment. But if we were to go around advertising ourselves as wisdom teachers, it would, <laughs> well, it would partly be probably end up speaking to ourselves, <laughs> and uh, we might do anyway before the end of this retreat, and also, of course, all the conceit and... Uh, arrogance that can come out. So, in our small deference to ourselves and uh, each other's, we prefer the more modest label. But nevertheless, in the processes of the meditation, what matters is the wisdom. It is the wisdom that matters in our relationship to what is happening in the ordinary and in the everyday. What, where is this wisdom going to come from? What is going to make the difference that makes all the difference? What is going to make the difference that makes all the difference? And sometimes, particularly where there is some compounding going on, compounding means the monotonous dwelling upon something which is compounding the situation. And we do that through all sorts of uh, rationalizations. And we keep putting things together and we keep repeating them and we keep going over and then building it up and giving, as I say, this sense of solidity to a circumstance. And it can, can become, I think, rather addictive and rather easily the task and the challenge of meditation can sometimes, unless we are vigilant, actually be used inadvertently to reinforce something that's going on because we've got so much involved in it. 
And in fact, we'd probably be far you know, better off going out and digging the garden or um, um, watching TV or something because it keeps our mind off it. It, that which has the charge to it, that which we are compounding. So in a way, this compounding that is going on, sometimes it seems that the issue which is being compounded is something which has tremendous reality to it, and yet perhaps if we genuinely listen fully and carefully to what it is, sometimes one small change, one fresh perception of the situation brings the whole compounding uh, to a degree that it just collapses, like if you have a house of cards and you pull one of the cards out, the whole lot falls apart because one has seen through it, through one minor change in the compounding. So we're not looking, in fact, here for anything dramatic to uh, an enlightened and realized life. But in situations where there is building up upon, sometimes we might ask ourselves, what would be the change that makes the difference that ends the compounding? And sometimes we have had thoughts and thoughts and thoughts and thoughts and thoughts and thoughts and we have gone to other human beings, they're called professionals, who have thoughts and thoughts and thoughts about the same uh, situation, or med meditation uh, teachers who are basically unqualified pr um, professionals, <laughs> <laughs> that, and somehow or other we expect that out of that dynamic or whatever, that the change will come, and I would say, sometimes we need to ask ourselves, what is the way to look at this situation which is dramatically different from what my mind has been telling me for the last 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 80 years? What would it be to look at it completely different that my mind couldn't dream up? And then one says, oh, but if I do that, it's just going to seem like a theory. It's going to seem rather intellectual. It's going to seem rather abstract. And therefore, I won't do it. I'll just stay with what really seems like how it really is, <laughs> which is essentially miserable. <laughs> so sometimes there's a kind of unwillingness within ourselves no matter what the situation it is, no matter how real the drama of one's existence may appear to be, sometimes there is a resistance within us to actually exploring the potential to look at it utterly differently, and for some that may be the first time in one's life that one's been willing to do it. And we're here to make that shift of perception. And that shift of the perception brings the wisdom. And I say there's nothing on in this earth, nothing whatsoever in this 
whole uh, range of human experience of life, inwardly or outwardly, which has the power to stop that shift of, of perception. That, that makes the change and the change which sees things afresh and the liberating power and beauty of it. Nothing on earth can take a person away from that possibility. About um, 18 months ago, I um, went to see one of my, uh, see both my teachers, but uh, one of them, um, Ajahn uh, Buddhadasa. Buddhadasa uh, means um, uh, servant of the Buddha, or as he would sometimes comment, slave to the Buddha. (laughs) (laughs) And in this uh, meeting uh, with him, uh, I spent uh, just uh, a few days there in the forest where he has been living for the past uh, uh, 50 uh, years. And, in fact, um, a month ago he uh, died and he, uh, at the age of 87, he um, went into a, a coma and he had uh, requested um, some months ago that he... Uh, was not to be uh, kept on any uh, life uh, support uh, system in any way. And he asked, uh, this is like an incident here, he asked, because he's one of the best known and best loved and uh, most disliked of uh, the teachers as well, (laughs) I should say for his uh, unusual perceptions, that he requested that the Thai people and the Thai ordained Sangha of uh, monks and nuns didn't uh, engage in a huge funeral service. Because if he hadn't made that request, there would have been literally thousands and thousands of uh, monks engaging in chanting and um, burning of uh, candles and incense. And he had commented a number of times, uh, I can quote fairly precisely, that he said, um, um, in uh, the spiritual life, the burning of uh, candles and incense is, quote-unquote, for thumb-sucking kids. (laughs) 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 And and in the meeting, uh, meeting with him, he uh, focused and he was stressing very, very uh, strongly uh, in the uh, meeting. He's saying, as I was uh, saying a little bit uh, earlier on, how much human beings are involved in the movement of coming and going, of change, of birth and death, and that somehow in that movement of change, coming and going, birth and death, that there's a kind of belief or imagination that goes along with it, that somehow that is the truth of things. That is the true nature of things. And we see in that way, we feel in that way, we perceive, we think in that way, and thus we assume that's the way that it is. And he said, how can the nature of things be subject to change, 
to birth and death, coming and going. How can the nature of things be that? The nature of things is the nature of things and the nature of things will be and is and is timeless. So he said, please tell those people, please remind those people again and again that the nature of things is the truth of things. And there the wisdom is found in that and not in this imagined projection interpretation that the truth of things, the real nature of things is in coming and going as though the nature of things is going to die. What would it be to look so deeply into things that that movement of imagination, that movement of interpretation, of projection and of belief and all the pain and fears that go with it that we see it like we see right through it. Like if we're walking along in the evening and we imagine that on the ground there is a, a, a snake and we feel threatened by that snake and we stop and we look more carefully in a more full and total way and we see, oh, there's, no, there's no snake there, it's just a, a stick, it's a piece of rope. It's not how I thought it was, it's not how I, uh, how I imagined it to be. And therefore, there's nothing to be afraid of in life. So I see in the body of the teachings, in our uh, time and uh, exploration here, we really have an opportunity to shift the perception out of its molded influence. And we know what awakening is, what that change is, and the way that we know it is that we feel we are free and we know it. We know it. And when we know it, carping on about things and complaining about things and going on about things and building up things and reifying things and solidifying, it does, doesn't seem to have any real contact with the truth of things. It's just old mind sets. And we have said, we've looked at it, the nonsense of it, and we have said, enough is enough. And that's a, surely must be a delightful relief for anybody. To live this world, to live this life, to explore it and experience it, and to have access to it and to sense one's freedom in it because one is not blinded to think in the movement of birth and death as being the true essence of life. The true nature of things. Let's be at home in the true nature of things which doesn't know that change. May all beings 
see into themselves. May all beings see into life. May all beings be touched through the true nature of things. So let us have two or three minutes quiet period together, shall we please? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.